Hello, hello. You are listening to WIUXLP Bloomington, and this is American Student Radio. I'm your host for this episode, Nancy Nee, and put on your rose-tinted glasses, because today we are talking about love. We have a very special show for you today, exploring ideas about romantic love, self-love, and so much more. So you're not going to want to miss this. I think I need to do like the same. Hello! Live from... Awesome. Okay, great. Sounds like Live from Indiana. Live from Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is hot. It's a hot mic. This is American Student Radio. That's pretty great. Is it like a sound or is it like... Fresh, crunching snow. Two hours of finger picking. Very good ASMR content. <laughs> Tragic, but also really beautiful. First, what is love anyways? How can you put a feeling into words? Romance is a timeless tale and traditions vary from person to person. We sent our ASR correspondent Jack Bassett out in the streets to ask a wide array of characters to answer the age-old question, what is love? Uh, what is love? Give and take. Uh, basically, I would say it's not 50-50, it's 90-10 each way. And if you don't participate both ways, you don't have love. And she is also my best friend. Alexa, what is love? Affection can mean a positive feeling of liking. Also, romance is the expressive and pleasurable feeling from an emotional attraction towards another person. I think when you really realize you love someone is when you're willing to make big and small changes for them. Um, I know I've felt it when I found myself adjusting the way I text and the way I do certain things just because I know it made more sense to them or, you know, it meant something to them and I know that the person I'm with loves me because they have altered little things in their life and have changed it just to make me happy, just to make me smile. It's when they do those little things. It doesn't have to be big, grand gestures. It's the small day-to-day things um, that really make you realize that you're with the person you're meant to be with forever. Love is that feeling of belonging and comfort. Love to me is knowing that we can be 100 miles apart and nothing's any different than if we're together. Love is knowing that no matter how good or a bad day you've had, that seeing your significant other is just going to make your day that much better and knowing that they'll accept you no matter what and be there for you through anything. Love is when you order pizza on Valentine's Day and watch Criminal Minds for seven hours straight. I knew I was in love whenever I knew I just think it's about her all the time when I'm out with her. And when I'm with her, she's got to be on my side. What is love? Something my wife knows nothing about. Love is breaking up and still being friends afterwards. Love is when you have no words to express your feelings for the other person. I think love is being able to fully love and accept yourself to the point where you can fully love and accept someone else because it starts within and then you can spread that love outward. I don't know, love is just happiness. Love is like what makes your heart happy. I don't know. (laughs) You can love anything. I don't really think you can define love just because I feel like it's different for everyone, but there's definitely a difference between loving someone and being in love with someone. And I don't know, I think love is just whatever makes you happy. When did I know I loved her? I would say it was probably within 12 hours. She was a sweet girl. Sweet girl, she understood me. 
which I thought was strange because she's city girl, I'm farm boy. And that's about as opposite that two people can get. And they all, the friends we had said, it'll never last. <laughs> Usually, we think of love as a feeling towards someone or something. But what about self-love? And can self-love extend to our past selves? In this next piece, producer Kate Spence was inspired by the hashtag 10-year challenge that blew up on social media these past few weeks. So she wanted to look at what the things we say about our childhood selves say about us now. Can I just ask, how old were you 10 years ago? Shoot, I was 10 years old. <laughs> I was 18. Er, Oh, eight. Ten years ago, I was 12. Um, I was nine years old ten years ago. I had to think about it. And can you describe yourself at that age? I was pretty nerdy. <laughs> oh, I love the Black Eyed Peas. I was really, really obsessed with Pokemon. I mean, that like whole elementary age was like really awkward and weird, and everyone started getting braces and glasses. If you have social media, there is no doubt that you've seen the hashtag 10-year challenge making its rounds. People posting a picture of themselves 10 years ago juxtaposed to a picture of them now. Sometimes the caption going along with the pictures is joking and playful, but other times they seem downright hurtful. Things like, thank God for puberty, ugh, this is so cringy, and I can't believe I used to wear that. These kinds of comments I started to see often when people would compare their current selves with their past selves in this challenge. Dr. Peg O'Connor writes in Psychology Today that these photos remind us of where we used to be, with whom we used to be, and who we used to be. But they also remind us of what we used to look like, and this may prompt some harsh self-evaluations. The problem I have with this is that for a lot of my peers, 10 years ago, we were literal children. It got me thinking more about how we perceive our past selves, especially those of us who are still relatively young. Do our kids' selves deserve to be treated the way we often treat them? With scorn, embarrassment, and mockery? Were we really that embarrassing to begin with? To answer that question, I knew I had to look back on myself 10 years ago. I had my dad send over some pictures of me for this piece, and I gotta be honest, it was pretty hard to look at them. Picture this. It's 2009. Owl City's Fireflies is blasting through the earbuds of my second generation iPod Touch. I was 11 years old and in the fifth grade. My favorite things to wear were plaid Bermuda shorts, baggy t-shirts, and so many chunky knit hats. Basically, I was a style icon. Okay, I can't lie. My physical appearance back then is something I still cringe at. However, it did remind me that when I was younger, I wore exactly what I wanted to wear. I loved those stupid hats so much. I wore them everywhere, and my sister even crocheted me a few. Sure, you can argue that it's because I didn't have a sense of style or whatever, but... I commend my younger self for having the confidence to rock a teal green knitted newsboy cap with a purple bubble vest. Back then, I was also obsessed with making short films. I used a hand-me-down camera from my dad to shoot them. 
the sound quality was practically non-existent. However, I loved making them. My characters were always badass women who saved the day and the world. I spent hours behind a computer editing them together with iMovie. They were my pride and joy, and I showed them to everyone. Thinking of these two things made me realize what I admired about myself when I was younger. I didn't care what others thought of me. I wore those chunky knit hats, and I directed those short films, and I didn't care what anyone had to say about it. I was confident. Certainly more confident than I am now. I found myself getting a lot of similar answers from the people I was talking to. I did not care about what anybody thought about me. And I still don't. But, like, I was just more bold in it, I think. Also, I was very confident. Yeah, I, I could make friends easily. Like, right now, I could easily go to that person and just start a conversation. I was less afraid to be, like, loud and out there. I, I'm, like, a really tall person, and at that age, I was probably, like, a foot taller than everyone, so automatically, I was already, like, weird and outgoing, and so I didn't really care if my personality was also that way. It's pretty clear to see that even though we might be embarrassed with our kid selves, we also miss something about them. And for a lot of us, that something is confidence. I'm not sure where you lost yours along the way, and to be honest, I'm not exactly sure where I lost mine. All I know is that maybe we shouldn't be looking at our kid selves so scornfully now. After all, we were just kids. And instead of focusing on the negative aspects of ourselves at that age, maybe it's time to think about ourselves a different way. So I'm going to work on sending some love to my kid self. She was actually pretty cool the more I think about it. From 2019 to 2009 to ancient Greece. In this upcoming piece, I sat down with Professor Lay, a professor of philosophy here at IU, to take us through one of Plato's best-known works, The Symposium. Plato is um, the first systematic philosophical thinker um, in the Greek tradition. Uh, Socrates was his teacher. Socrates didn't write anything. Um, the views of Socrates, so far as we know them, um, we mainly know through Plato's dialogues. Plato's early dialogues presented a reasonably accurate depiction of Socrates. In his later dialogues, such as the Symposium, there's a character who shows up named Socrates. But the Socrates that we see in those middle period dialogues is probably not anything like the real Socrates in terms of Socrates' own views. He's kind of Plato's spokesperson. Um, that figure, of course, shows up prominently in the Symposium. Uh, Socrates is a main character, and, and in a way, the, the whole dialogue is about uh, how the people in his circle um, viewed Socrates and how they interact with him. The overall topic is the question of love and the nature of love. It's actually very unclear what Plato's goal is in writing the symposium. Uh, interpreters disagree. Um, and, and disagree uh, very significantly about what the ultimate message of the dialogue is. Uh, it's a series of speeches, supposedly in praise of love, offering accounts of love. 
Socrates himself gives a speech, but he attributes a lot of what he says to a wise woman named Diotima, who he claims was his teacher. Socrates' speech, like Aristophanes' speech about love, these are all part of a series of speeches that are being given. The event is a symposium, that means drinking together. Um, basically, it's a symposium was when a group of people would get together, they would get very drunk, and they would give uh, toasts that were kind of bordered on speeches or in, sort of intellectual speeches. It was kind of like getting drunk and, and having a good time and showing off intellectually and sort of playing around with big ideas. So, Agathon has just won the prize uh, uh, in a play competition, and so they're having a symposium in his honor. And they decide to give speeches in honor of love. So you asked me to read a little bit from the speech of Aristophanes. And Aristophanes tells a story about love, which he describes as a myth, according to which human beings were originally created double, so each, per each person had two legs, pardon me, four legs, four arms, two faces. Uh, these beings were very powerful. Some of them were male-male, some were female-female, and some were half-male, half-female. They were very powerful, and they began to uh, challenge the gods. And uh, Zeus, fearing their power, uh, split them all in half. And that's where the excerpt that you asked me to read picks up. And it runs like this. Each of us, then, is a matching half of a human whole, because each was sliced like a flatfish, two out of one. And each of us is always seeking the half that matches him. That's why a man who is split from the double sort, by which he means the sort that was um, half male, half female, runs after women. Many lecherous men have come from this class, and so do the lecherous women who run after men. Women who are split from a woman, however, pay no attention at all to men. They are oriented more towards women, and lesbians come from this class. People who are split from a male are male-oriented. While they are boys, because they are chips off the male block, they love men and enjoy lying with men and being embraced by men, those are the best of boys and lads because they are the most manly in their nature. Of course, some say such boys are shameless, but they're lying. It's not because they have no shame that such boys do this, you see, but because they are bold and brave and masculine, and they tend to cherish what is like themselves. Do you want me to prove it? Look, these are the only kind of boys who grow up to be politicians. When they're grown men, they're lovers of young men, and they naturally pay no attention to marriage, or to making babies, except insofar as they are required by local custom. They, however, are quite satisfied to live their lives with one another unmarried. In every way, then, this sort of man grows up as a lover of young men and a lover of love, always re rejoicing in his own kind. And so when a person meets the half that is his very own, whatever his orientation, whether it's young men or not, then something wonderful happens. The two are struck from their senses by love, by a sense of belonging to one another, and by desire, and they don't want to be separated from one another, not even for a moment. These are the people who finish out their lives together and still cannot say what it is they want from one another. No one would think it is the that it is the intimacy of sex 
that mere sex is the reason each lover takes so great and deep a joy in being with the other. It's obvious that the soul of every lover longs for something else. His soul cannot say what it is, but like an oracle, it has a sense of what it wants, and like an oracle, it hides behind a riddle. So here's what happens. So we get a series of speeches in praise of love, and the passage I read by Aristophanes is from one of those speeches. Um, what Aristophanes is suggesting is that, in effect, love is a desire to be reunited with your other half. Socrates, in his speech, gives us a very different picture of love. He describes love as a form of desire or yearning for something which one does not have. And he characterizes that initially as beauty, but he connects it also with goodness. And then he describes what is called in the literature the ladder of love. And the idea is you start out by being struck by the beauty of an individual person. And so you fall in love with that person in response to their beauty. But then you recognize that what you're responding to is their beauty. And there are lots of other people who are beautiful too. And the idea is you shift from loving that individual to loving the beauty in people. And then you realize there are other things that are beautiful too, like beautiful social structures, beautiful institutions, beautiful laws. And so you love the beauty in those things as well. And then as, as Socrates tells the story, you're kind of abstracting away from the particular things that have the beauty. What you really love is the beauty itself. And so the idea is that in the end, you, your attention gets turned away from all the particular things that are beautiful, the particular people. The real object of your desire, he says, is what he calls the form of beauty, beauty itself. And this is supposed to be an absolutely unchanging, immaterial thing which somehow reveals what beauty is in its essence, what beauty really is. And the idea is that that's really the thing that we crave. We crave contact with beauty itself so that we can gain an understanding of what beauty really is, apart from all the particular beautiful things in the world. So he's giving us a very otherworldly conception of love, right? Yeah, yeah, love starts in this world with attraction to other people, but its proper object is this other, very different thing, the form of beauty. That's a picture of love on which you don't actually, in the end, you're not attached to particular individuals at all, right? What you really care about is just beauty itself. Professor Lee and I actually ended up continuing our conversation for a while longer. After Socrates gives his speech on his views of love, there's this comical turn of events, and at the end of the symposium, you are left with a contradiction in Socrates' point of view. And well, to come to your own conclusions, I think you should take a, a crack at the symposium yourself. For most of her life, feared has dictated producer Sophia Mustin's relationship with birds. So when crows line Bloomington's trees like leaves in the winter, she isn't thrilled. Last year, she embarked on a reporting journey to understand the crows, hoping she'd grow to love them. 
Whether that worked out is anyone's guess. Here's part of that personal odyssey. There's this scene in Hitchcock's The Birds. It's a scene you might already know, but in case you don't, here's the gist. A town's schoolchildren are being mercilessly dive-bombed by a murder of crows. This behavior is far from true of crows. They don't even sound like that. But the scene does fit into a folklore tradition going back centuries. Matilda Lind, a doctoral student in folklore, says representing crows as fearsome creatures is nothing new. And that could be for several reasons. It's an animal that's very prolific in its breeding. It lives in very large families. It's also an animal that will feed on dead things. So it kind of walks between the worlds or flies between the worlds. But why do we have so many stories about crows in the first place? For one, they're close by, especially in places like Bloomington, where they line the trees during winter. The crows are one of the types of corvids that have learned to live with us. And they've incorporated themselves into cityscapes in really interesting ways. Like the fact that they come in in these gigantic murders. It's like one of my favorite things to watch them fly in. And perhaps the large numbers of crows we see in Bloomington are significant. An old British folk rhyme dating back as far as the 16th century associates the number of crows we see with good or bad omens. That rhyme goes one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, and four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. That rhyme is still pervasive in the American cultural psyche. After all, it's the reason the band Counting Crows have their name, and it even appears in their song A Murder of One. We could just be giving crows a bad rap. Lind says they're far more advanced than we give them credit for. They can tell people apart even when we can't tell them apart. They've even been recorded telling stories of their own, gathering around one individual and watching as it performs. Though our culture's stories may leave us feeling spooked by crows, Lind says they're sticking around, and human infrastructure is inevitably hospitable to them. I just think that we as a culture need to start thinking about how we interrelate with the parts of our surroundings, the parts of our world that aren't human, but that also have a right to like exist and have independent lives. I would like for us to somehow find a way to make room for beings that aren't us. For many of us, college is a time of exploration, a time to figure out what you love to do and how to make a career out of it. But how do we know what's worth pursuing? Producer James Keyes sits down with Professor Constance Ferre to talk about life, love, and religion. If the only good plans are the obvious plans, then we don't have any alternative thinking. And if we don't have any alternative thinking, we have a real problem. I've inevitably been thinking a lot about what comes next, what comes after college. 
I came into school three years ago as a biochem major with a very specific plan. I was going to work in labs, get good grades, go to grad school, and then I'd be done. I was guaranteed to be successful if I followed that plan. I was guaranteed to help people, to make medicines, cure cancer. But that was never what I actually loved to do. What I loved to do was think about the world, to think about religion and life and philosophy. So when I dropped biochem, I picked up religious studies. I still don't regret that decision. I found a home in the department, and for the first time, I was actually really excited to go to my classes. I can study things that really piss me off, things that frustrate me in the real world. For me personally, it feels especially selfish to want to study something like religion professionally. I feel the need to help people, to build things, to do some sort of tangible good, and religious studies just cannot be quantified in those ways. So I sat down with Constance Fury, the chair of the Religious Studies Department at IU, to talk about some of these big ideas. In a lot of ways, she was in the same place as I am right now. I remember going to my Religious Studies advisor and I said, I feel so selfish <laughs> doing this thing because I love it and because I have the, this gift I've been given by my family that I can just do what I want. Like, yeah. why adopt the pressures that society is is imposing upon you when you have a passion and an excitement and a pleasure that gets you up in the morning, that's energizing, that makes things... It's not energizing to feel like, oh my god, if I don't get a job, I will, you know, be starving in the streets. But even if I am passionate about religion, who am I helping by studying it? What kind of societal need am I fulfilling by studying these abstract themes of life? Is it even worth it? And I think that's where the kind of, where you stand on something like the unexamined life is not worth living. Yes. Like whether yeah. that resonates like, whew, what a relief to not have to examine it. Yeah. I, no, like no, the unexamined life is so much more comfortable and so much happier yeah. and so much better. Or no, the unexamined life is not worth living. But I think to put it also in your world terms, because I really hear that, it, you know, that to not think about it selfishly, like, do I think the unexamined life is not worth living? But, you know, what do I think is good for others, not just myself? And I think then you have to, it seems important to consider if we don't examine life, then we let whatever the dominant mode of life is right now prevail without question, without challenge. We can go through life without thinking. I even will grant that some people can go through life without, could be happy and satisfied without thinking. But it is not true that allowing all of us to just accept and be comfortable in our own existing certainties, that is, it is not true that that creates a better life for everyone. For American Student Radio, this is James Keyes. Now, I wanted to do this show on love because love is something that I am so confused by. I've never dated before, and I'm a hopeless romantic holding out for the one in a reality where there is no the one.
But what really gets me is that everyone that I know who is in a relationship, even those who have been in relationships for years, occasionally throw me the, ugh, seriously, once you get in a relationship, you'll know how good you have it right now. Love is such a powerful, irrational, and sometimes all-consuming emotion. And so, for the past few months, I've been asking all my friends what they look for in a significant other. For this piece, I got some of my friends and some strangers to share their answers with me. I look for someone who is willing to be vulnerable and open about things without me asking them to be. So like coming to me to tell me how they're feeling or how I make them feel without me being like, tell me all your secrets. I think it's important that love is something more than just physical or material. I think it is something that is deeply ingrained in the minds and hearts of two individuals. And in a significant other, I would want someone who feels the same way. So to me, it's really someone who can compromise and who I'm, I can really hang out with. And, you know, if we get through, if we get in a spat or have something wrong with one another, we can openly talk about it and have a conversation rather than letting it bubble up or letting it, you know, spill into something huge. We can just talk about it and talk it out. Um, someone who is funny and thoughtful and um, wants to like get into really weird deep conversations about like metaphysical things that like things that don't matter but like they do and they're just like cool to talk about and someone who cares about me and is going to be loyal to me yeah my top quality in a partner they have to be funny they have to have a good sense of humor and make me laugh they have to be adventurous and willing to do really weird spontaneous stuff with me like take a random trip to colorado for me in a significant other i look for someone who can basically be my best friend i like it when i can hang out with my significant other with my bros with my sister with my family with whatever group of people that i'm in and it doesn't feel weird it doesn't feel like i have to change the way that i act or accommodate to that person and then that also that person fits in, because I think to me that means that that person fits in my life perfectly. I feel like you would have to be very comfortable with them and confident. That, uh, that's what I would look for. Like someone that you could just be yourself around, but then also someone that like challenges you to do something new and try new things and just have new experiences. So I don't know, they kind of contradict uh, like being comfortable but also being challenged. Uh, absolute commitment. I am a hopeless romantic and it seems like these days nobody wants to commit. So I need someone uh, who can match that with me um, and I want to feel like we can uh, go anywhere and do anything. I look for in a significant other, a person that makes me want to be better yet also makes me feel that I'm already more than enough. Someone that understands me and is fascinated by me and admires me and wishes not to change any of my quirks and flaws that come along with me. Someone that challenges and supports me and that is thrilled to watch me flourish. I need someone who is my biggest fan and that believes in me and my dreams even on days when I struggle too. A partner should enrich my life and make me want to love better just to keep up.
I used to look for like the selfish things, like if they were short and blonde, if they were my height or not. But I guess I just want someone that's real that I can have a conversation with and someone that just gets me, someone that makes me laugh and someone I can imagine growing old with. I look for a best friend and my significant other, someone who isn't afraid to share their feelings or opinions with me and someone who can see the lighter side of situations and laugh about it. We live two separate paths, but our bond is inseparable. We understand that our relationship isn't perfect, just like us, and we accept our imperfections. We are open and honest with each other without fear of judgment. There is no jealousy, selfishness, or envy. My significant other is my true love. She is my best friend and soulmate. I look for someone who can make my heart, soul, and face smile. Someone I can talk proudly about. I want our love for each other to be unmatched. I want someone who's willing to work things out with me no matter what, who listens to me fully and tries to understand me. I want constant effort to pursue our relationship. Above all, I want them to be able to be them with me, to feel all these things about me as I feel about them. I want our love to be reciprocated. As for me, the hopeless romantic, I used to have these expansive lists, like I wanted a guy with this personality trait or look like this or whatever the case may be. But I now realize that I just, I just want someone to love me as much as I love them. The best relationship advice I ever received was to not view relationships as these 50-50 partnerships between two people. Instead, do 60% and expect 40% from your partner. If your partner does the same, you guys will never be without. And on days when you are at 40%, because those days will come, your partner will meet you exactly where you are. With that, we conclude our show. Whether you're celebrating Valentine's Day, Galentine's Day, Single Awareness Day, or some combination of three, Whatever it is that you're celebrating, I thank you for listening and hope you have a lovely week. For American Student Radio, this is Nancy Nee. We'll catch you next time. Bye.